Our scripture reading this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. be found on page 984 in your pew Bibles. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Good morning, everybody. Hey, my, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're one of the people who bring a jacket or a sweater everywhere you go because you get cold everywhere, God broke the air conditioner for you this morning. Seems to be only half working. So if you get hot, we aren't um, unaware. It's hot, a little hot, but we'll see. Um, hey, the uh, religion and kind of a culture or a atmosphere of religious activity in the ancient world was everywhere, was everywhere. Religious practices and religious worldviews were ubiquitous in the ancient world. Cults, myths, and kind of initiation ceremonies were all over the place. They were oriented around what people believed about God or the gods, and they were oriented around what people believed about themselves, and they were in every civilization. And that's just like our world. That's just like the modern world. The idea that human beings have learned or developed or arrived at a level of kind of objective sophistication that renders religious orientation and religious motivations of human beings unnecessary isn't true, okay? You can't help but encounter the world in relationship to God the true God. There's nothing neutral about atheism or secularism. Religious neutrality is a myth. Whether you name things like karma or crystals or magic or manifesting or new age philosophy, we live in a spiritual and religious universe because we live in the one that God, the true God, created and sustains. And he created lesser beings that are powerful and spiritual and real. And he didn't create a kind of sterile, scientifically objective universe that's empty of supernatural reality. The material world that we live in is not capable of being contained in some separate physical and scientific dimension. That's why God calls everybody to worship him in this world, right? Because he's God and he's really God. More than the sun is the sun and more real than gravity is the reality of God. So our question becomes not whether or not empty philosophy or some man-made religion is going to tempt us toward idolatry or try to distract us from Christ. The question is, isn't whether that's happening, but where in my life is that already happening? Which things in my life are competing to be the center of my life, the center of my comfort, the center of my hope, the center of my growth and maturity, the center of my world, the center of my spiritual devotion? Which things in my life are contending for my preoccupation, for my attention, for my trust? 
Listen to how religious even something like physical therapy has become in our day. I read a recent article, and toward the end of this article, one physiotherapist makes this claim. Finally, quote, finally, humanity can hope to free itself from the cycles that have dragged us through eons of war and violence and poverty. Someday soon, we will all be clean. That language is overtly religious, and it's being applied to physical and emotional well-being. I belabor the point so that when we read about things like worshiping angels or gloating about visions, that the essence of what's going on isn't missed, so that it doesn't just fly over our heads, so that it doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. There are dynamics at play in today's text that we are very familiar with, and I want us to understand that and then plan accordingly. Now, Just so you know, one of the commentaries I've been reading, G.K. Beale, in his exegetical commentary on the book of Colossians, he opens his evaluation on these verses with this statement. He says, quote, this verse is one of the most debated texts in Colossians and perhaps in the entire New Testament. So we uh, we have our work cut out for us today. But as we'll see, the context conveys an intended meaning. And this section is best understood against the backdrop of all the apostles' collection of exhortations that began back in verse 8. So I'm going to refresh our memories by reading verses 6 through 15 of chapter 2. Colossians 2, verse 6. The reason that I'm reading this is because I want us to feel how the apostle is stacking exhortations. They all have a different angle and a different encouragement and a different admonition, and he's stacking up a list of these. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, he put away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you read that section of Colossians combined with our section from last week, you hear three clear exhortations. Let no one, let no one, don't let anybody, don't let anybody take you 
captive. Don't let anybody judge you. And here today, don't let anybody disqualify you. The core of the reason that these false teachers shouldn't disqualify anyone is that they're disconnected from Christ and they're spreading information that's a lie and is disconnected from Christ. They're teaching philosophies that are disconnected from Christ. Their rules cannot make anybody mature. They can't make anyone grow with the growth that is from God. So I'm going to break up this morning into two sections. The first section, I'm going to explain what the dynamic of this particular exhortation is, is this morning. The phrase Paul uses, don't let anyone disqualify you. We're going to mine that phrase and dig deep in there and get a lot of stuff out of it. And then the second section, we're going to talk about the particular false qualifications that these teachers are imposing on the Colossians, and we're going to dismantle them and dismiss them. So before I begin talking about that phrase, don't let anybody disqualify you, um, would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love your word. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you spoke to us. You're for us. Even if your words are sharp, it's because, it's because you're a, a surgeon with a scalpel. Lord, cut out sin, cut out immaturity, cut out arrogance and pride, and cut out cowardice. Fill us with faith, and by the Spirit of God, strengthen and, and fortify and bolster our faith today, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, when Paul, when Paul states this exhortation, don't let anybody disqualify you, he's essentially telling the Colossians to not have any umpires in their life that aren't operating from Christ-centered principles, right? Some other translations say, don't let anyone disqualify you and keep you from getting the prize. You have the idea of like a runner or something. And if he cheated, he'd be disqualified. An umpire or a referee is the kind of um, uh, feeling that this, this uh, instruction has. And for us today, we shouldn't be moved, okay? We shouldn't be convinced. We shouldn't be persuaded when people in our life blow the whistle on us based on what they say is right, but not based on what God says is right. And that takes wisdom. That takes maturity, right? Because we have tons of blind spots and we might, we might not be able to see clearly which is which. And in principle, it's a good habit for Christians to always be suspicious of themselves. Because the Bible reminds us that we deceive ourselves. And as Christians, we should want to listen to sound advice. And it's destructive any time that we shrug off good counsel or wisdom or instruction. And if the instruction is from God, it's actually sinful to just shr uh, shrug it off, to close your ears or close your hearts to what God says. The Bible gives correction and instruction, and it gives it in the form of commands and rebukes and warnings and teachings that are centered on Christ and demonstrated in the word. If a, friend, if a friend loves you enough to expose your sin or even just expose your folly, it's 
always destructive for you to ignore it. And they're pointing, if they're pointing to sin in your life, they are loving you. Maybe not perfectly, but they're trying to love you and you should listen to them. We should want to listen to them. But when other people in your life throw flags on you and call penalties on you according to a game that you never agreed to play, don't abide them. Don't be swayed by them because they're playing a different game. And the games that these false teachers are playing are empty philosophy, pagan religiosity, traditionalism, moralism, ceremonialism, legalism, asceticism, and more. And when it comes to these kind of games, don't even get on the field. Paul's point is don't even put on the jersey. The referee in the Super Bowl cannot disqualify you from anything because you don't play in the Super Bowl. At least nobody that I know of. But how often in our lives do we catch ourselves fully kind of emotionally compelled to listen to the judgment of others? Or how often are we convinced that we should respond to other people's judgments and we should abide certain penalties from sheriffs and umpires in our lives, mostly just because they act like we should? I'm in a spot here this morning with this text where I have two really strong burdens for followers of Christ and for people in this church who love Jesus. I want more than anything for the people in this church to love God, to be arrested with affection and devotion to the living God. And love for God is expressed in joyful obedience from the heart. That's how it works. So that means I long to see our people in joyful obedience from the heart to God. And that isn't legalism. That isn't Pharisaism. It's godliness and it's holiness without which nobody will see the Lord. And I'm burdened that we have the maturity to also stand confident in Christ when the world or your friends tell you that you're not acting like a Christian should. When you lovingly stand your ground. Now, we need wisdom for that. Call it a tension that has to be navigated. Call it whatever you want. But if you love God and you obey the Bible, the world and some of your friends and some of your Christian friends will call penalties on you and blow the whistle on you and throw flags on you and you shouldn't listen to them. It's never loving to disobey God, ever. You get the feel, you get the feel of what I'm trying to communicate in this kind of metaphor or word picture here. It's, it's like picture this, you're walking your dog down the street and all of a sudden a basketball referee shows up and blows the whistle and says, and calls you for traveling, but you ignore it naturally. You don't listen to him. You don't stop. You don't listen to anything that he says because you're not playing basketball, Right? You're not participating in the game at all. Their rules don't apply to you. In fact, you're not even in the, on the court. You're not even in the stands. You're not even in the same arena. He's the one that's sorely mistaken because he's disconnected from reality in that moment. And being disconnected from reality is being disconnected from Christ. He holds and sustains all reality together. These false teachers are disconnected from true piety 
and true humility and true godliness. They're disconnected from the head. They're disconnected from Christ. That's the dynamic at play in verse 18. And when you're disconnected from Christ, you cannot have the maturity found in Christ. That's a consistent theme in this book. It's a consistent theme in this church. And it's a consistent reality that we should try to characterize our lives by. Essentially, this command offers an opportunity to our church right now in real time this morning to two different kinds of people in the room. And we all, we all have a little bit of both in us all the time. There are people in this room who need to be more warm to correction and more willing to not just hear advice and dismiss it, but hear advice and heed it, right, from other people. Some of us even take scriptures like this and turn away from good advice and use verses like this to justify our obstinance when we should respond in humility and agreement. But others of us need to stand our ground and not give in when the world or your coworkers or Christian brothers and sisters try to pressure you and badger you and lean on you when they don't necessarily have biblical grounds to do it. Paul's already said in chapter one and in other places in the New Testament that he and the apostles warn everyone that they correct and instruct and rebuke Christians for the sake of those Christians' maturity and the strengthening of their faith to make them more stable. So this section provides us with an opportunity to evaluate our hearts. You see, we should be teachable people. And that's not a surprise to anybody. Most people have heard that said that way. Like, um, uh, what kind of leaders do you look for? Well, look for leaders who are teachable. But we should also be warnable people. We should also be correctable people. We should also be rebukable kinds of people. It's good for you to cultivate a soft and responsive heart to biblical warning and correction from all the saints of God who are fighting for your good. And another person in this room is actually too correctable, too teachable, too influenceable. And that person is also invited to do some reflection and, and discern with the Holy Spirit where they're letting unbiblical pressure from other people disqualify them from a game they aren't even playing. So that's, that's my first section. In Paul's main exhortation here, let no one disqualify you. He's saying, look down. You aren't wearing that jersey. Don't play by their rules. They don't call the shots. They can't penalize you in any meaningful way. But they can ridicule you. They can ruin your reputation. They can mock you. They can smear your name through the mud and make you an object of scorn and derision to all your enemies and all their friends and maybe even to your own friends. But they can't take the substance from you, which is Christ, and he alone judges you. That's section one. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Now, section two, let's try to identify and apply what kind of rules we should ignore. Again, in order to do that, I want to name the plays from the false teacher's playbook. 
They all come from verse 18. Let me state them negatively and quickly. The first one is, asceticism can't make you qualified. The second one is, worshiping angels can't make you qualified. And the third one is, seeing visions can't make you qualified. Remember, the false teachers are claiming some sort of higher spiritual plane of ultimate fulfillment that Paul has already decried by explaining that only Christ has the fullness of deity in himself. And these false teachers are claiming to get that fullness by other means. So first, asceticism can't help you. Real quickly, the nature of these kind of gates that these false teachers are trying to put in front of these people are essentially saying, you want to know God, you want to believe God, you want to love God, you want to experience God, you got to come through these certain thresholds that I came up with. you got to come up with these certain thresholds that I'm imposing on you. That's the only way to get there. And those are the thresholds, the gates, the doorways that Paul wants to smash down, okay? There there are warnings regarding asceticism elsewhere in the New Testament for a reason. It's because you and I are tempted or prone to believe that we can manipulate God by our good behavior. If you look up a Webster definition of asceticism, it says something like, asceticism is a life of self-denial including such things as fasting and rigorous bodily discipline and a general avoiding of any bodily pleasure which could be construed as neglecting the body. So insisting on a certain diet or a certain physical discipline regimen or in order to get you closer to God or to arrive at some sort of spiritual higher plane of existence is what's in view here. And it is empty and it's worthless because it's disconnected from the head. It's disconnected from Christ. One scholar says, asceticism is the belief that if you stack up enough physical negatives, you'll get a spiritual positive. And that's a lie. It's a lie. You can't abstain from natural pleasures of this world in order to get brownie points with God. You can't whip yourself in order to impress God. You can't read your Bible to get God to love you more. You can read your Bible because he already loves you more than you could ever imagine and you want to know what he says. But you can't manipulate or cajole or twist his arm by your pious behaviors. It doesn't work that way. And believing that it does isn't only useless, it's also arrogant. It's also prideful unbelief. Number two, insisting on the worship of angels cannot get you closer to God. Now, a lot of you aren't going to fight me on that one because most of you aren't insisting on the worship of angels. I get that. There are scholars who argue, and this section is highly debated, but, but there is a, um, an essential uh, quality here that I think that we can apply to our lives and understand and, um, and listen to. What's at play here, in essence, is a preoccupation with spiritual beings or spiritual scene that distracts and diminishes from the role of Christ in our lives that these false teachers are pushing, okay? So Paul's at least saying that these teachers are so thoroughly engulfed and obsessed with stories and beliefs and ideas about angels that they're essentially worshiping them. Listen to this scholar. 
Some have claimed that the Colossian errorists understood these angels to be involved in creation and the government of the world. And they worshipped them as their link, kind of a mediator to God. These angels could be regarded as malevolent, where they need to be appeased, or benevolent in bestowing blessing. Their so-called worship may involve propitiating them to ward off their evil effects or beseeching them for protection. What this means is that there may have been a habit among these teachers to appease spiritual beings, either for protection or to ward off evil spiritual beings. But either way, there's this undue and unhelpful and incorrect preoccupation that's focused on angels, on angelic realities. And amongst these teachers, that's what's happening. And that's harmful to true spiritual growth. The undue preoccupation with angels is at the very least what Paul is condemning. And some scholars go so far as to say that he's actually being sarcastic with them. He's actually kind of making fun. Anything in our lives, anything in our lives that preoccupies our focus so much, that gets so much of our heart's attention or our faith or our hope or our comfort can be substituted right here and then ridiculed the same way that Paul does. And the way that I can help you understand that is think of the you know, the 16-year-old boy in high school who the only thing he thinks about, talks about, or, or, um, or the only thing he dreams about is some girl in high school that he can't stop being obsessed about, right? We even say things like, you worship the ground that she walks on, right? We get that sentiment, and that's what Paul's doing. It's like you're worshiping these angels. You talk about them all the time. You think about them all the time. You're making other people talk about them, making other people think about them. At the very least, the point that he's making is that our obsession can be so distracting and so wrongheaded and so intensely misguided that it looks like worship. It, it, it's the dial of your emotional health. It's the dial of your hope. It's the dial of your trust. How are you doing today? Well, it depends on how you're doing with this thing. It holds all that power in your life. And we know this. We get this. This isn't as far from our modern times as we think it is. I'll, I'll help you again. We know this when we hear someone say something along the lines of, Chiefs football is like a religion in this house. Right? What we mean is we devote all our money and we devote all our time and we devote all our hearts, energy to the Chiefs. You can do that with angels and demons, just like these false teachers, or you can devote your heart and your resources to other things. But that level of intense obsession and enthusiasm with angels or with the chiefs will not get you closer to God. I promise. If you feel proud or arrogant or self-righteously comforted because of what you eat, that's bordering on worship because of what you expect it to do for you. You can fill in the blank with many things. Just ask, what does your mind and heart revolve around, right? A preoccupation with essential oils or a preoccupation with medicine. Maybe it's a preoccupation with getting more money or getting the promotion, or hitting your retirement goals, or being preoccupied with the veneration of saints. When there's an undue preoccupation 
the scale in the human heart tips and it tips toward worship. It tips toward worship. So let me address something that's rife in our modern religious culture. What's your impulse? When you encounter disappointment or missed expectations, when you encounter gaps in your life, gaps in expectations, gaps in what you thought your life would be like, gaps in where you are right now and where you want to be. Maybe you had the thought, I I thought I'd be a better mom by now. Or you had the thought, I thought I'd be happier or less anxious or more obedient or I would just be more content. This is not what I thought my life would be like. Or when you have problems in your life and you want them resolved, where do you turn? Because even modern Christians are tempted to turn anywhere but the Bible. We go to Google, we go to Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, we buy self-help books, or we look at our bank balance. We go shopping. What's the person or the thing in your life that absorbs your fascination and solves all your problems? Many of the things I mentioned in that list are not good or bad in and of themselves. And I know that, and I named that type of thing on purpose. I'm naming things that are innocuous on purpose. Christian maturity requires us to take things that aren't good or bad in and of themselves and uh, uh, evaluate and assess and understand our relationship to them. To examine our heart's relationship to everything in our lives that's competing with our devotion to God. And the path of Christian maturity doesn't ever end. So we should be actively searching for places that sin and immaturity keep us from being more tightly connected to the head, which is Christ. So let me offer this exhortation. The next time you want to scroll through Instagram or buy a self-help book or write your Substack or even pick up the trendiest Christian book on the market right now, have you exhausted or even began to exhaust what the Bible says about your problem, about your trouble, about your struggle, about your distress? Have you gone to the word of God yet or have you approached the throne of grace your heavenly father in prayer? Or do we even believe nowadays that the Bible addresses every single problem in our lives? Because what you turn to in the day of trouble is very revealing. What you turn to in the day of trouble is very revealing. Looking to anything but God for ultimate help, ultimate security, and true reassurance isn't humble. It actually makes you arrogant and it's a waste of energy. Number three, seeing visions can't qualify you. Paul's pointing out that going on and on and on about some spiritual experience is a diversion. It's a distraction. And it's interesting in this place that Paul doesn't denounce all visions, right? He doesn't take this opportunity to say, hey, if someone tells you that they had a vision, you can just know right then and there that person is lying, Write them off and don't listen to them. Forget about visions. He doesn't say that. But he does point to the fact that gloating about visions misses the point. Let's say you have some unusually powerful spiritual experience in your life and it edifies you and encourages you and it strengthens your faith. Still, living in a way that aims for that, 
that aims for focusing all your mental energy in order to get that experience again is missing the point. And going on and on and on about that experience is missing the point. A really helpful um, illustration for this is actually from Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 12. In summary, Paul's had a vision in his past and he's referencing it. He was taken up into the third heaven and there he heard things and saw things that he can't even talk about. He even says, I wouldn't be weird to boast about these things because they were worth boasting about. They were amazing, but he's not interested in talking about them. He doesn't care to go on and on about that experience because he doesn't find any satisfaction in getting to have the experience itself. His only boast in life and death is Christ himself. It makes sense for Paul It makes sense for Paul, even though he is someone to admire and he is someone to look up to and he is someone to imitate, it makes sense to him to say, I'm nobody. Christ is somebody. It makes sense to him to say, I'm nothing. Christ is everything. It makes sense to him to say, I am weak. Christ is strong. Claiming that their visions give them some sort of spiritual credibility is wrongheaded, misguided, and destructive. And this is how it works. Insisting on these other things in order to make you full or godly or spiritual actually backfires in that moment. It, doesn't, it isn't just neutral. It isn't just a mistake that doesn't go anywhere. It actually springs backward as well and makes you arrogant. It makes you proud, asceticism, preoccupation with angels, and obsessing about visions all puff you up without reason in the mind of the flesh. These are all examples of how not to walk in Christ, of how not to be rooted in Christ, of how not to be built up in Christ. Asceticism, legalism, man-made religion is how not to be established in the faith. That's the burden in the context of Paul's admonition to not be conned and tricked into into responding to and paying penalties for a game you never agreed to play because Christian living is only to be found in Christ. So let, let me ask you this morning, Do you have someone in your life that is judging your walk or your maturity by something that's not Christ-centered? Don't let them judge you. Is someone trying to persuade you to embrace an extra biblical or a non biblical way of seeing the world? Don't be taken captive by it. Is someone trying to convince you that you're only a good Christian if you affirm all of their positions and decisions in life, don't let that person disqualify you. Don't let it bug you. Live free from that. Today, people feel very free to tell you all the ways that you don't measure up to their expectations and all the things that that you'd be doing differently if you were really a loving and spiritual person. But if their metrics are centered on anything other than Christ, then their metrics can't give you maturity or growth. 
If their metrics are centered on things like pop psychology or therapy or inherited family traditions that are powerful or socioeconomic class or their social sensibilities, wherever the pressure comes from, whatever it is, if the metric doesn't have the center of Jesus Christ, it isn't a metric at all for Christian maturity and growth. Furthermore, if someone's trying to disqualify you based on non-biblical criteria, then they have come loose from the head. That's what Paul's saying today. We, we may have people in our lives judging each other's righteousness on all kinds of extra biblical material and extra biblical categories or outright unbiblical categories. We may have people claiming to understand certain mysteries or secrets that are opposed to the revelation of the mystery that is Jesus Christ. All of us are tempted to find what we're looking for outside of his gospel. And for these false teachers, their fundamental problem is that they seek their spiritual strength and they seek their spiritual sustenance and they seek their spiritual guidance from something other than Jesus Christ. But God has ordained the true growth and authentic godliness and a life that pleases and praises him is derived from a conscious dependence upon drawing all nourishment from the head who is Jesus Christ. One scholar said it that way, sorry. So today, I want to invite us, like I do most weeks, to interrogate our own hearts right now. What, what kind of like secret sauce are you trying to add to your life that's actually diminishing or distracting from the power and the strength and the clarity of the gospel? What are you adding to Christ that's misguided and ultimately will only make you puffed up with pride? These teachers thought they had reason and Paul exposes them and, and he says that all of their reasons are really just a sham. Their path to spiritual enlightenment feigned humility but was complete fiction and their false humility actually just produces arrogance and pride. And in our day, pride is cloaked in all kinds of insincere disguises. Pride hides all over the place. Pride is sneaky and hides everywhere in all kinds of unlikely places. Pride can be shrouded in even in things like talk about self-care and healing and shame or even defending other people or fighting for the marginalized or talk about justice. Pride is insidious and ubiquitous. And if we find ourselves in a commitment to a cause that involves not listening to the word of God, it isn't righteous, it's unbelief. And it's arrogant unbelief. Even if we've been sinned against, abandoning the biblical instruction isn't an option. Two wrongs don't make a right. True Christian growth comes from one place. It comes from the head. So the final exhortation to us this morning is hold fast to Jesus Christ. Gather up all your resources 
and enlist them. Make them obedient to you to hold fast to Christ. Through him and him alone, the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments so that it can grow. And this growth of the body is not a strategy for numeric growth. This growth is a growth in health and discernment and strength and faith and maturity and completeness in Christ. It doesn't come from pretending to be humble all the while ignoring your own arrogant unbelief. It doesn't come from asceticism or by becoming absorbed with angelology or anything else for that matter. And it doesn't come from seeing visions in the third heavens and going on and on and on about what that experience did for you. The answer this morning is the same answer that we've been giving every single week that we've been in Colossians. The answer is hold fast to the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-righteousness cannot help you. Asceticism cannot help you. Remember, Christian freedom, true Christian freedom, is the freedom to live in Christ. It's the freedom to not be a slave to the list of things that other people impose on you by, not not by being um, a slave to nothing, but by being a slave to Christ. That's true Christian freedom, to love his commandments, to love his word to us. No man-made rules can serve as your judge or your referee this morning. So look to Christ today, and, and even this morning, offer him your life and your allegiance again afresh as we enter into the final part of our service and take communion. As you eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ, you are proclaiming his death until he comes. Christ himself said, unless you eat my body, right? Unless you drink my blood. The point is, you want life. You need life. And the only place that you're going to find it is in Christ. So the way we take communion here is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have two stations down here in front of the podium, one in the balcony and one uh, over here to my left that is gluten-free and it's also single serve. We also have prayer ministers that at this time of the service take time to pray for anybody who wants prayer. So if you want prayer this morning, meet over here underneath the stained glass window and somebody will lovingly listen to uh, what the need is you have and they will pray for you. And at at, at Redeemer, communion is open to anybody here who places their faith in Christ. And that means that if you haven't, right, if you have another system, you have another routine, you have another philosophy, you have something else, it's probably not angel worship, but it might be. You have something else that you're putting your faith in or your hope in or you're orienting your life around. Man, hey, we're glad that you're here. We love you. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to just be hospitable and say, hey, drink, drink the coffee and hang out with us, be our friend. But But please don't take this meal. This meal is a family meal for the people of God, the the very household of God. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ, come forward in a moment and eat. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare our hearts for communion. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. In just a second, I'm going to pray for us and the musicians are going to come forward. But as we end our service, let's proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ has what you need. He has all the fullness of God in him. There's no place else to search. There's no place else to run to. Every other path is a dead end. I'm going to I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, would you all pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, would you get glory from what we do here on Sundays? Would you be made much of? Would you help us point to you and you alone in our songs and our hospitality and our friendships and our generosity and in the preaching of the word and the receiving of the word and the, and the, uh, the receiving of your body and your blood? Would you get glory from our gatherings? Would you get glory from this body that gathers in your name? Holy Spirit, convict us Strengthen us, make us more mature, grow us, reveal to us places we're hoping in other things than the gospel. That we're looking to somebody else besides you, Christ, to make us whole or happy or okay or full. Would you, would you meet the brokenhearted this morning and bind them up? Would you meet the proud this morning and help them by cutting them down? Free us. Free us, transform us, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, hey, whenever you're ready, you can come forward and participate in communion. Whenever you're ready, come down and eat in faith.